Welcome to the latest edition of the Carmichael Governance Podcast. I'm Dermot O'Carbui, CEO of Carmichael. Carmichael is a charity that provides supports to other Irish charities, particularly in the area of governance. You can find details of what we do and a wide range of free resources on our website at carmichaelireland.ie. You can also find previous editions of our governance podcast on our website or on your favourite podcast platform, be that SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, Acast. I'm delighted that our guest today for our podcast is Brian Kavanagh, business coach, a consultant and author. You're very, very welcome, Brian. Just maybe to get us started, you might just give us a, an overview of your career to date and the type of different roles you've had in your various stages as you move through life. Well, it's great to be here, Dammit, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. I've had a bit of an eclectic career. I started as a sole servant. I've been a salesperson. But most of my working life really has been round around the board table in decision-making. I've been a council for 20 years in the city of Edinburgh Council, where I was born and raised. I chaired the Social Services Committee for 10 years there. I was on Scotland's second biggest health board for 10 years and chaired it for six or seven. And since I moved to Ireland in 2008, I've been a mentor to not-for-profit chairs and chief executives. I do a lot of board development work. I sit on the board of Fosca Housing Association, a fantastic housing association up in County Louth. And I also work guiding and developing boards. I'm now, as you said, about to be a published author. Excellent. And as you say, a very, very eclectic career. Your book, Governing with Purpose, which is planned to be published in September, an interesting title, but also I'm just interested in what was the inspiration or the motivation for you to take on that sort of labour of love and, and, and actually produce a book on the topic? I suppose that when you're involved in governance as a lay person and you're responsible for the oversight of a complex organisation, public, private or not-for-profit, there's a huge responsibility. And I'm struck when I'm trying to get material, fresh material to do board development, there was actually very little on the shelves that spoke to the experience of a trustee in a charity in Ireland or in the UK. Most of the books are American. Most of them talk about the CEO experience and most come from the private sector. So with a certain, there was something I wanted that was contemporary to aid and support people who I was developing. The second thing is a belief I've got that governance is critically important. Every day there are organisations making decisions that affect all their lives including the not-for-profit sector. As citizens, we deserve the best governance possible we can. And look at the sector, which I love and worked in, a lot of the governance is inconsistent and not dodgy, but difficult and lacking sometimes in quality. That's not a criticism. It's just a statement of fact of where some of the sector is. And thirdly, looking through people's experience and seeing good people frustrated, not clear what to do and why to do it, I thought I would like to help out. Rather than just doing an event where people maybe take 10% of your masterclass, whereas they're having a book that can be a reference point for them to reflect on whether mature or brand new board members as a source to help them ultimately enjoy the experience. And I'll leave you with this point Dermot, I see a lot of good people going home frustrated because they're not too sure if they've actually made a contribution. And it shouldn't be a burden. It should be an enjoyment as well as a responsible activity. So the book tries to get people to think, enjoy the experience, appreciate and show that you are delivering value by your very presence. 
I'm just interested in who who you had who were you writing this book for? Who was your target audience when you sat down to put pen to paper or put your keyboard into action? I suppose it came like the light bulb the light bulb moment when I was sitting with a great group of people in the north and they were going through quite difficult times with their chief executive and they were struggling to know what to do. Very gifted people in their fields. But how does the board deal with that challenge was causing them difficulty. And that was the spark to say, this they could do with something like this. And so primary objective is brand new board members, but most importantly, experienced board members, because we are never the finished article, Dermot, and we always need to be developing and improving. And as a board member, I think you've got an obligation to show that you're developing yourself as well as expecting the chief executive to develop the staff. Second group, I guess, is opinion forms and influencers, because I do think that the, the government sector has let down the not-for-profit sector very badly by not investing in the governance of small charities. It invests quite heavily in state organisations through coaching and board development. It should have a fund to support smaller charities development. You can't improve quality unless you invest. And small organisations, even medium-sized organisations, are struggling to see investment in board development as a priority. I think it's a priority. I would be, wouldn't I? I would, I would, I would absolutely concur. And from our own experience, you know, when you think there's over 77,000 charity trustees just in the charity sector alone and you've got other non-profits and you turn up with maybe high passion and commitment and want to do well. And I remember when I got involved, first of all, I came from the private sector into the, the charity sector. It is a very, very different environment. And what, what you would expect would be operating norms from the private sector are different and they're different for a reason and it's but getting your head around that uh, and your first day and the first few months and and also that ongoing development because there's always a child the, the organization evolves but also the environment in which you're operating needs evolving so keeping up to speed and what you need to do and how to do it i would absolutely it's can a, i just expand on that because i think it's a really important point uh, you know this is a distinctive sector we don't talk of the private sector as a monolith nor should we, nor should we talk about the charity sector. There are people who are running a, a, a project down the street, all with volunteers, and there's Bernardos. They are hugely different organisations. They have different values and different objectives, but they have the same core objective. They need to be supported. And there's a sense that government doesn't really understand the sector. It likes to use the sector when it suits it, but they Leaving aside the moral judgment, this is a huge economic impact. The number of people who are actually directly employed by the sector is a huge generator of income and economy. And the follow-on work that the sector generates by its purchasing of products, its development of training programmes, its property assets and portfolio are a massive economic as well as social resource. The government needs to be more sophisticated, more subtle in asking better questions of the sector so the sector can help them get strategic goals achieved, which the sector has been particularly good in social care in particular. Absolutely, and just even on social care, the number of charitable organisations that are involved in provision social care on behalf of the state, yes. you know, one in three people that are involved in delivering social care in this country come from the, the non-profit sector, which is a, an amazing sort of figure when you think about it and you know that has its implications in terms of there is, a, there is an obligation on the state to help make sure that the governance is of top notch from your own experience and you have quite a lot of experience from just your just your introduction there of the sector what would you see as being some of the biggest 
weaknesses or challenges for governance of, of charities? So what, from your experience, what are the pinch points or the pain points? I think there's a couple of weaknesses. And one is the almost following on from the previous points about what do, uh, does a board member actually do? And the temptation with all that passion and energy is want to do something you can touch. So the temptation to get into micromanagement is really huge. Again, not because board members are malevolent, but often they see that an organisation with a limited senior management team may require the expertise of, say, for example, a board director who is maybe a professional in HR. The temptation going to do the job. My question is board members should understand the temptation but always resist the temptation. That's not their job. It's not their job. Their job is to oversee and ensure the chief executive has enough resources to support the organisation. I think the second weakness is the temptation to groupthink. So we're on a charity, you and I, a shared passion, a shared commitment. We want to see the charity do well. There's a temptation, again, not to have conflict, not to see division. See, division is a problem, so we all agree. What board governance does need is a person saying, I don't understand that, that doesn't seem to work for me, and encouraging that voice. And again, that's not because charities are bad, but we can't afford a situation where loyalty trumps good governance. The biggest challenge I think we face is around an increased regulatory environment, with the temptation for organisations to, to, to work to compliance rather to work commitment. I would like to see good charities say that the regulations are a floor on which to build, not a ceiling to restrict. So I would like to see boards committing to good quality governments rather hoping that they'll be compliant and bring a sigh of relief when they are. Now, that's an early days for the charity, so I'm not a criticism. It's a new part of the world. The downside is that a lot of time and effort has to take place in the regulatory environment, and sometimes board members question the real added value. I guess that's the conversation that sector needs to have with government. I would agree you know, that, that there has been a, a strong focus on regulation and compliance, and, and there is a need for it. And you know, good governance leads to more effective charities, but it's getting the balance right. The charities are there with a clear charitable purpose to do something, social benefit, public benefit, and that's the primary focus of the board. But sometimes the need to get all your ducks in a row in terms of the compliance can dominate the, the time and discussion space on, on the board members. So it's very, very important. And which leads me on to the role of the chairperson. You know, we touched on it there a bit on the role in terms of making sure there's good, good dynamics in the boardroom. From your experience of looking and observing chairs in action, good or bad and indifferent, what do you see as the sort of the attributes or the characteristics of a good, effective board chair? The, the job of the chair is to make sure everybody else is heard and the job of the chair is to be heard last. Your job as a chair is to create a safe environment for people to challenge, to debate, to reflect, to think out loud before you make decisions. You're also in to ensure that the paid members of the organisation who support and guide the board are given space and respect and trust and finally, to ensure that board members stick to the role of governance and leadership, not micromanagement. The chair is, needs to be the conductor of the, orga, of the orchestra, not the lead violinist or the drummer 
or the bass guitarist or whatever wants to want he he usually he unfortunately wants to play the days of the chieftain running organizations long gone as is the remote chair who turns up once a year to do the annual accounts and cut the ribbon chairs need to be they are part of the board they're board members individually they need to set the tone and Conversely, if board members are setting the wrong tone of arrogance, of dismissal, that the board members should have the courage to challenge a chair and remove the chair. No, I, I love that analogy about the chair being in the, the, the conductor of an orchestra and the, the, the primary role of the, uh, the conductor is to get the best out of the, the different musicians and the skills and talents that are around the, the, your orchestra. So it is a beautiful analogy and I think it fits very, very well of what the chair is trying to do. It's trying to get the best from the individuals to make the, the collective that, that it is clear and focused and does its work well. Which leads me on to the next sort of thing I want to tease out with you, Brian, is what for you makes for an effectively well-run charity? What are the sort of things, you see, the pillars or the, the features that you see that make for a, a well-run and effective charity? I think for board members, we start with that first. They need to know the why. So why am I on the Carmichael Centre's board, for example? I should be able to tell someone on the Lewis that I can't wait to get to Carmichael because of what we do is so important and I love being a person who guides the strategy that we've got great staff my job is to get out the road give them the tools and the safety to allow them to get on the roll I think there's a lot of really good people who want to contribute they often become supporters rather than governors now supporting an organisation particularly social care organ renal cause say cystic fibrosis there are lots of supporters they don't need any more supporters. They probably need more governors. So be clear why you're going to that charity. Be clear what your role is. So are you a person who likes to ask curious questions? Are you a numbers person? Are you a person who is good at team building? What is your skills and what are you getting out of it? Because we don't need, we don't need martyrs or saints around our boards. We need governors. So we need people to talk, debate, discuss and direct strategy. In terms of the organisation, we need chief executives who let go, who encourage staff to flourish and have a succession plan to replace them if it has a sell-by date. And thirdly, charities should be refocused on their core principles. The temptation to veer off course, because there's a pot of money that looks attractive, which I understand has to be resisted, and the board should help the rest of the organisation focus. So in parenthesis then, Board members need to focus on the purpose of the organisation and see if there's a fit between them and the purpose. If it doesn't work, that's not a problem. But don't go into a charity feeling obliged because a friend's asked you to help them out. Go into a charity because you've got specific skills and you have a grow and a passion for that charity and for that cause. And you'll be a great board member and you'll have a great board. Absolutely. And I think going back to the point we're making about being clear about what your purpose is and what difference are you trying to make? And that's one thing that we would see is an opportunity now. We've come through very difficult few years in terms of COVID and where the focus maybe is, is staying alive, keeping keep, keeping the, the show on the road. But um, we're looking at more and more boards need to go back to first principles and say, well, why are we here? What are we doing? Herein lies the problem for board members. If you're the chief executive of an organisation, you can measure your performance quite well. So we've got more grants, or there's more people using our service, or we've got a gold star 
or the regulatory authority has put us out as in the top 10, if I'm sitting on that board, do I really own that success? Because often we'll say, thanks to me on the board, it's now doubled its money. That's not my success. My success is to create a safe environment for the chief executive to get on with the senior management team to do that stuff unhindered with clarity and direction. You know, So I think the board should start to learn about what, what does success mean for them, for them as a board collectively and then for board members individually. And that's not an easy conversation, but some of the things that I refer to, how you can do that in the book, and when I'm working with boards, that's the thing I try to work work for. And some of that we can talk about later on. I yeah, know, and um, we've just, just, just two weeks ago, our board took time out for a day just to address that question, for what for them is success? and how they can contribute it. And it opened up a very energetic discussion. And there was a sort of a energy leaving the room when we finished and said, God, that was great. We should do this more often. And that's unfortunate. Sometimes the board don't give themselves that space yes. to think of the big questions and what they mean and why they're there and what, what for them, looking three, five years on the road, if they said this would be success if, 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 we, if we got to here and this is the role we can play as a board. So I would fully endorse that. that. Um, as I just mentioned, COVID and the times we've had and an increased regulatory environment. But one of the things here in Carmichael we're seeing more and more of is um, boards that are struggling with, say, conflict, tension, division, you know, and, and it's really getting in the way of doing the sort of things we were just talking about earlier. What would be your advice for boards that find themselves in that situation where there's a lot of conflict or there's non-constructive tension in, 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 the, in the boardroom and in the organisation? I think you're right to point this is a, an uncertain time, but I guess the charity sector has always been uncertain times. I guess the only thing that's consistent in the charity sector is uncertainty and unreliability, particularly in funding. I think I'd like to draw a distinction between what I would term constructive conflict and destructive conflict. Constructive conflict is about getting better decisions, and that's fairly self-explanatory. Destructive conflict comes from a variety of avenues, but it shows us a tension in the board, an unhappiness or a lack of clarity around direction. Maybe it's a power grab by the chair, maybe it's personal clashes, maybe the balance on the board in terms of skill sets are different. Maybe there is lack of clarity around what the end goal of the organisation may well be the purpose has outlived its course. So the best way that to happen is the board to stand back and say, okay, what is the issue or the issues that are causing conflict? And I find in that environment, it's best to get somebody from outside to mediate or facilitate a conversation where the chair is in the room along with everybody else rather than trying to, to oversee that conversation because inevitably the chair will have a view. He'll have a side, if not an interest. So I think what I would like to do, and when I've done this, is we have in the room and let's see... What's everybody's perspective of what's going on? And try and get what the issues are. And if the issues are out then, what can we do next? It's a long process. It's not an easy process. And sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes the energy of the board has run its course, that you require a new chair, new office bears, and perhaps a new board. Or some people, that's the way for them to move on. It's not easy, uh, but the board can't afford to indulge itself and in an ideological squabble around who dances on the pinhead of a needle, frankly, because if you've got 20 or 30 people working for you and, say, 120 service users, you can't afford that indulgence. So you need to be quite focused 
but you need to have a, an open heart conversation about what's going wrong and how we see different sides of the coin. I, it, it is difficult to give you an answer without a specific, but these are some of the general approaches I would try and, and draw. I think, and it goes back to your earlier point, the more the boards meet to talk about the board without an agenda, out with the board meeting, the less likely some of the destructive conflicts you're talking about are like to rise. Because board members only, they're only coming to a board meeting every two months. It takes a long time for you and I to get to know each other every two months for three hours. The more we get to know each other, the less likely destructive conflicts are likely to prolong. Not always, but it's easier to have a conversation with people who you get. I think, uh, and also I don't think meeting by Zoom or whatever has helped that dynamic. But And I would agree, you know, each situation is, has its own particular set of circumstances. But I would say to boards, don't avoid it. Don't put the head in the sand and hope it'll blow over and go away. You just need to have that honest conversation and go and get help. And do you know why that's so important? Yeah, because a lot of people are thinking, maybe it's just me that sees this conflict here. I won't see anything because I'm just new or what do I know, or better people are doing this, so I've got no role here. And we all collude because we don't want to cause a fuss, or we don't want to upset, or we don't want the distress of awkward and comfortable conversations. And none of us want those uncomfortable conversations when we think we're all, you know, playing for the same team, for the same goals. Sometimes it's not like that. And that takes a bit of courage. It does, and also people need to remember that we're all different. We've different styles, different way we address problems or how we like to tease out problems. So, I think understanding your colleagues around the board is very, very important, and how they work, how they react best. Some people are big picture stuff and visual; others are detailed, and we need all of those skills around the table. But that can cause some tension sometimes. Um, We've mentioned the role of the, the chair, and we've also been passing talking about the importance of the chief executive. But that board chair CEO relationship—it's so pivotal to the the, the 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 success and a good governance of the organisation. What sort of things do you think should charities and non-profits have in place to make sure that that relationship is well-founded and working well? This has to be based on two fundamental principles: trust and mutual respect. Following that understanding each other's role. Let me give you an example. When I chaired NHS Lothian, I was a new chair and I appointed a new chief executive. So we had to get to know to work each each other's understanding very well. We had a huge agenda of massive budget deficit and four hospitals to move into one organisation. So five organisations to one. So we need to really have a clear understanding of how we work together. And to some extent... That experience for me has influenced and shaped my thinking on this role. And we took a view that there's a boundary between our roles and there needs to be placed on both sides. So we, what we did was we started the way we're going to work here. And we got a big flip chart up in the wall. We put all his legal responsibilities and all my roles and responsibilities. And there's a bit in the middle around the ambassadorial role, external relations, media work that we decide how do we deal with that sometimes it was both of us sometimes it suited the argument for the chief executives to be in front of the camera sometimes it suited us to be for me to be in front of the camera so that was a principle and we stuck by that so I think there's a bit about you don't need to like the chief executive and you don't need to be best friends sometimes it helps 
but I think that mutual respect and recognising the professional roles and trying not to cross the boundaries. So try to avoid micromanaging. For the chair, try to be avoid being lectured by the chief executive on all the detail. You're both the leaders of the organisation, so you need to act like leaders, you need to give space to each other, and you need to find a way of when you disagree, how do you disagree, and where do you disagree, and how do you make up? And sometimes you sometimes you can't make up, and that's okay, because it's a different point of view, and you don't want to fudge it for the sake of pretending you're best friend. It is okay for the chief executive and the chair to disagree in a board meeting. I think it's healthy, provided it doesn't become a power rivalry and a challenge to the, the board's governance. And it becomes a personal rather than being, being, being objective about what's in the best interest of the charity. And that thing, keep asking what's in the best interest, because sometimes we can cloud our own judgment, our own personal bias can get in, get in the way of acting in the best interest. And I do agree, and I like that exercise you did, because clarity around roles and, and, and the boundaries is very, very important, and it isn't a fixed thing. So sometimes you have to revisit those from time to time because the environment changes and the experience of, of the board. And, and you know, guess what? It's a lonely place for both those individuals. And I got myself a coach from day one because I knew I was doing something different. Though, interestingly, that wasn't particularly well regarded by the NHS of Scotland that time, which I found astonishing, but leave that sticking to the wall. I think for chief executives, though, they need to get proper support. You know, a remote chair who is difficult to connect or breezes in half an hour before the meeting is really unhelpful. And an overweening and over... Bearing chairs, equally dif- different. Chief Executive has enough problems and challenges without having to manage the eccentricities of a chair. So a chair, when sign up, need to be working closely with the Chief Executive, respecting each other's different roles. But regular contact is a good way to maintain that and establish the government procedures. Another the topical thing that comes up, we hear a lot about working with the, the groups we are with is, is particularly for smaller charities is the, the difficulty sometimes in recruiting new board members and we've discussed it's so important for the, the organisation that there is continual throughput of board members coming through the organisation that we keep that energy there what advice would you give to small charities that are and that's the bulk of charities 80% 90% are, would go under the label of small if they are struggling with recruiting new board members it may not be a popular view, but one of the things that I think that the charity sector could learn from the housing association movement here is term limits. And I think if you've got a difficulty with recruitment, it's good to know that recruitment is a permanent part of your job. Just now, recruitment only happens if somebody dies or wants to move on. If you know that your board members only got four-year terms, you know that you need to be planning a recruitment strategy straight away. For smaller charities... I think there's twofold challenges. How do you get fresh faces and how do you get different faces? Ireland is increasingly diverse. Our board should reflect the communities they serve. And one of the things that I think is worthwhile doing, and some of the social enterprises are starting to do this, have apprentice board members. So get into your communities. If you're particularly in a geographically uh, settled, have a board open day. Tell the, the public what a board does, what the job's like. See if there's people who are interested in becoming an observer to the board or an apprentice to the board. Give them six months. Perhaps they want to have a board buddy that could come along with a more experienced board member and just sit and observe the board meeting. Obviously, have to be guaranteed issues of confidentiality and perhaps when the financial 
figures are detailed, they don't leave the room, but a way of getting to understand what's happening. That would do two things. It maybe get a regular stream of fresh people who haven't thought about boards, ties you closer into your communities, and you probably get more diverse. So every board should start their new calendar year with a succession plan, both for board members and for senior staff, because the same thing is going to happen. A small charity with a good chief executive's going to be captured. It's not different from soccer, Gaelic teams or rugby teams. Your people are going to capture the rising stars. So how does a board keep a good chief executive and how does the board keep a good board? And this is a constant day job. This is not a one-off thing. And I think that's where the mentality of the board needs to change as well as term limits. Because there's a final point on this about accountability. As a lot of people sit on boards for longer than they should, we should all know our sell-by date and most of them are really decent people and the reason when you ask them why they stay on, because I don't think you'd get anybody else. They want to go, but they're so committed to the charity to stay on beyond their ability, and frankly beyond their energy. They go home exhausted, but they feel obliged. Now, that's a big burden for someone to carry for a local charity that may have been around for 20 years. Absolutely. If, say, there's somebody here listening to the podcast and thinking about going on to a board of a charity or has recently join the board, what advice would you give them? Speak to somebody you know who's on a board. Find out what it's like. I think then a lot of people come to charities because they know someone. Say, take social care, which I'm very familiar with. Somebody might have somebody who's got lenses built to mental health or cystic fibrosis, so they know about the condition. They may want to be on that board to put something back. So there's a real energy and a passion and a purpose. You then need to know... What does it feel like being on the board is very different from chugging a can in the street or writing to your TD. So speak to somebody who's a board member. Ask a board who you're interested in applying for, saying, could it be possible to see part of the board meeting or could you speak to a board member about what's entailed? Now, if they say no, I don't think you should apply to that board. If they're smart, they'll say, OK, come on, let's have a chat. And then you can interview each other because it may not be a fit. And I think the big challenge is getting the fit for you and the fit for the board. And your fit is important as the board fit. If you're not happy you and feeling you're making a difference, you're not going to be the best board member you could be or need to be. Very good. Excellent. Well, it's been a really fascinating discussion and I'm really looking forward to the book because I'm sure there's going to be lots of insights from practical lived experience and of doing it which will be is, is always very helpful the practical um, rather than the theoretical I think is what, what the, 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 our, your target audience needs um, just to wrap up I've, this is a question we ask all our participants on the podcast and it's to say you know, it's for, if you had three wishes what would you like to see for the charity sector over the next five years in Ireland here obviously it needs to be given its place as a part of a tripartite pillar of social justice. We quite rightly laud the private sector for its entrepreneurs, particularly the native SME sector that gets great credit. Our public sector, by and large, works well with one or two exceptions. The third sector is the third pillar of Ireland's social justice. It should be recognised as an equivalent pillar. I won't hold my breath on that one, but I think that's where substantial change would actually help to professionalise the sector. A second thing, I think this sector should be more bold about its commitment to quality and it should be intolerant of poor quality, particularly around the contractual relationship with big organising, like the HSAC. You can't run quality care 
on 10 euro an hour for a home care and no money for travel. That is just unacceptable. And the sector should put its face against that. And thirdly, the sector needs to get better at governance, be more humble accepting it needs to improve and it needs to support and it needs a greater diversity around its board table, both in terms of identity of, of communities and identities of geography. That would be my three wishes. Yeah. I won't hold my breath for all of them, but at least one of them would, would make me sleep happy and assure you we'd sleep happy too. Thank you very much, Brian. It's been fascinating talking to you and getting your insights in so many of these important governance topics that face the sector. Really looking forward to the book, which is coming out in September. So thank you for being our guest today. Thanks, Demon. Thank you very much. It's been a real privilege doing this. I've had a lucky life doing this, and it's great the chance to share that. Thanks. Thank you for listening to our latest Carmichael Governance Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did... It would be of great benefit to us if you could give it a rating, as that helps to create greater awareness of these podcasts. So until the next time, Slán Gofól. Go